Hello and welcome to The Uncover Up. I'm one of your co-hosts, Nathan Radke, and joining me today back in the bunker is Dr. Lee Kuhnla. Hey, Nathan. So, obviously, Lee, this is a ridiculous question. I know the answer to it already. I'm only doing it for rhetorical purposes. All right. Are you familiar with the Bermuda Triangle? I am indeed familiar with the Bermuda Triangle. Yeah, the Bermuda Triangle is one of those classics of conspiracy literature. It's one of the first ones that I heard about when I was a kid. It was one of the first ones that I got interested in. It it, it captures the imagination. Our students still ask us about it. It's it's a popular one. Yeah, you're right. It it has staying power the way that other conspiracies that were big at one time maybe don't have the same kind of staying power. And of course, we did a deep dive into the Bermuda Triangle in the previous episode. And uh, it was there was some interesting stuff there. Yeah. Uh, not all of those stories are as easy to dismiss as you would imagine, not having looked into it, maybe. Yeah. But as it turns out, we didn't have to go virtually all the way to Bermuda to find an eerie, creepy, dangerous triangle. Because we've got an eerie, creepy, dangerous triangle right in our own backyard. That is pretty surprising. Where is this triangle that I've never heard of. The Great Lakes Triangle. Really? Yes. And the claim is that it's just like the Bermuda Triangle? If anything, the Great Lakes Triangle, ounce for ounce, is far more lethal than the Bermuda Triangle. Really? Look at the numbers. I mean, it's 16 times smaller than the area that's normally considered to be the Bermuda Triangle. Okay. And yet in the Great Lakes Triangle, we have over 6,000 destroyed ships. That does seem like a lot at first blush. We have hundreds of planes that have vanished into the Great Lakes. Huh. And tens of thousands of people have lost their lives to the Great Lakes. Wow. All in this triangle. All in this sort of small area of North America. And there's some spookier phenomena as well. There's ghost ships that appear to fly over the surface of the water. There's orbs and saucers and strange lights and weird navigational issues. It's got it all. This is the place to be. That is amazing on two accounts. One, because we're right here and haven't heard about it. And two, that it would be, in a sense, more threatening than even the stories of the Bermuda Triangle would have us believe. Now, where then is this triangle? You mentioned the Great Lakes. Where, how do we connect the dots? Where are the points of the triangle in the Great Lakes? Well, to the north, it would be the tip of Lake Superior. Okay. Which is a, a giant, terrifying monster of, uh, of a lake. Yeah. To the east, it would be the eastern end of Lake Ontario. Okay. In a place that we're going to do a deep dive into, figuratively, called the Marysburg Vortex. Okay. And then to the southwest, it would be the tip of Lake Michigan. Okay. Which apparently is, as far as lakes go, a bit of a murderous psychopath. Okay. Well, you and I live, sort of, I guess, at the edge of one of these points. We're both at uh, Lake Ontario, and I can't see it right now from looking out your window, but we're close enough that if we looked out the window in a different direction, (laughs) we would be able to see the lake. Yeah. So... And and we go there all the time. Like, I don't think a day goes by where I don't see Lake Ontario. Exactly. For those of us in Toronto, it's a very good navigational point. It's to the south, and Toronto is an incredibly flat town. And so if you need to know where to go and you're a bit lost, it's, uh, the lake is a great reference point. Yeah, but despite the fact that we use it as a reference point to get around our city, apparently uh, a lot of people have gotten lost in it and in some pretty creepy, weird ways. So I've got a couple stories for you I want you to okay. react to. Okay. All right, we're going to go way back to 1803, 
and the province of Upper Canada that would later be renamed Ontario. All right. So there was an English fur trader named John Sharp, and he murdered an Anishinaabe man named Whistling Duck. Huh. Whistling Duck had a brother named Ogatonicut, who was promised by the governor of Upper Canada that there would be an immediate trial and that justice would be served. Okay. Do you believe that? Uh, no. Yeah. Uh, so justice wasn't served. There wasn't an immediate trial. Basically, a year goes by with almost no interest from the authorities to send Sharp to trial okay. for the murder of Whistling Duck. So in 1804, O'Connor took matters into his own hands and killed Sharp himself. Now, this second killing, unsurprisingly, did result in quick action by the government. Right. And they decided that this trial would actually make an excellent opportunity to establish an increased authority over the region. Okay. Like, this is really early days of what would eventually become Canada. Right. There wasn't a, a capital, there wasn't, there, there was no Toronto, like none of this stuff existed yet. And mm. so they're like, ooh, this trial will be a great excuse for us to like really establish our claim on these lands that we've stolen. So all of this had happened in the area that was then called York, and is now, of course, Toronto. But the government didn't want York to be the center of government power in Upper Canada, because apparently there was too much crime and too many sex trade workers here. Oh, really? There was also, uh, as I understand it, there's another reason, which is that it was too close to uh, the border to the United States. And so in a war, if the United States sent up soldiers, they would be able to quickly capture the capital. Whereas uh, now the capital is about 500 kilometers or 600 kilometers from the border. Yeah, and it's a real pain to get there. It, and it's, uh, it's winter most of the time. Yeah. So, you know, if you're trying to get up there on horseback or on foot, which would, would have been the mode of transport in the early 1800s, it's going to be a real unpleasant slog. And you can see them coming for quite a while. Yeah, exactly. Now, they weren't thinking Ottawa back then. They were thinking Newcastle, but for the same basic idea. Okay. So the plan was that they would sail from York to Newcastle, have the trial and inevitable execution there, and that would be a way of christening the new capital of Upper Canada. Hmm. Uh, sort of a bloody way. Right. Unfortunately, I guess an appropriate way. Hmm. Okay. So the ship that Ogatonicut and the government officials were sailing to Newcastle uh, was the HMS Speedy, uh, a gunship that had been hastily built in Kingston, Ontario, because of exactly what you just described. Because of the increasing danger of invasion by the United States which, of course, would happen in 1812, only right. a few years after. So the ship sailed from York. It stopped in Port Oshawa to pick up the Farwell brothers, who were witnesses for the trial. But according to Hugh Cochran, the author of the impressively named Gateway to Oblivion, colon, the Great Lakes Bermuda Triangle, the brothers must have had some sort of eerie premonition of danger. Since they refused to get on the Speedy, and instead paddled behind in a canoe. Huh. And that's a lot more work. Oh, goodness. And so they must have really had some kind of feeling that this ship was not a good ship to get on. So as the ship sails east towards Colburn, the Farwell brothers fell behind in their canoe and they lost sight of the Speedy. And that night, cannon fire was heard and seen. It was likely the Speedy signaling her position and communicating an SOS. Signal fires were lit on shore to help guide her back to safety, but she couldn't seem to make it back to shore. That night, the Speedy could be seen from shore being thrashed around by massive waves. The next morning, the Farwell brothers arrived in Newcastle in their canoe, totally safely, and nobody ever saw the HMS Speedy or any of her passengers again. 
So it appeared that the Speedy had fallen victim to one of the most dangerous areas of the Great Lakes Triangle, the Marysburg Vortex, which is... There are a lot of triangles in the story. This is a triangle <laughs> that stretches from Wolf Island to Oswego, New York, to Point Petra. And the area is famous for having magnetic anomalies that make navigation difficult. Okay. Just to be clear. So the vortex is a triangle within the triangle. Yes, it's, it's a it's, triangle it's, in the triangle. It's like an even more dangerous part within the triangle. Yes. In fact, within the Great Lakes Triangle, there are many tinier triangles. It's like the Russian nesting dolls of yeah. evil triangles. Okay. And are they all inside each other? Like, is there in the vortex, is there another triangle that's like an even more dangerous vortex? There is. <laughs> it's called Main Duck Island, and we'll talk about it. All right. All right. Now, the area in which the Speedy went down was also the home to a really strange phenomenon called the Devil's Horse Block. And what it apparently was, uh, was that navigators had found, as they were trolling the area to figure out how, how deep the, the lake was, a massive underwater stone pillar. And it had been located and mapped out as a danger to shipping. It was, like out in the middle of the lake, it was very deep, but then in this deep part of the lake, there was this strange giant stone pillar. Okay. But when the government sent out crews to see if there was any wreckage near the Devil's Horse Block, not only did they not find any remains of the ship, but the underwater stone column was gone as well. Wow. Weird. Very weird. So some people even theorized that maybe the ship had crashed into it hard enough to knock the underwater stone column over. Okay. That seems unlikely. Okay. I, I mean... mean <laughs> I mean, it was, it was a pretty big ship. It was a 200-ton ship. Right. So maybe it could have knocked something like that over, but again... So it's, I'm not sure what to do with this story. I mean, it's, that's all true. That's all historical fact. But is this evidence that there must have been something weird and creepy? Of course, a lot of people said that the, the ship was cursed. Uh, a lot of the people on the ship were very important members of this fledgling government for Upper Canada. So dozens of people were killed, and most of them were fairly you know, important government officials. So this was a real blow for Upper Canada. And so some people thought there might have been sabotage. There might have been right. some sort of conspiracy here. Or there might have been some kind of, like, vengeance. Hearing all this for the first time, I feel like we don't yet have enough data. Mm -hmm. So the same thing with, if I were to use the Bermuda Triangle, there's a group of planes that go missing. But is that it? Or do we get, like, lots and lots of other stories that sort of have also mysterious... Uh, endings to them. I think of it almost like flipping a coin and trying to draw some kind of general conclusions from having flipped a coin twice. So if I flipped a coin twice and it comes up heads twice, am I to conclude from that that it will forever come up heads? I don't know. I don't have enough data. So, Well, or, what I'll do is, I, th I think you raise a really important point. So what I'll do is I'll give you a little bit more data about this story. All right. All right. Now, this ship was called the HMS Speedy. Right. Now, I think the idea, it's sort of an adorable name for a gunship. But they named it that because it was supposed to be so fast. Okay. But it was actually a very good description of the way it was built. Ah. Uh. Because they were so afraid of American invasion, they threw this ship together extremely quickly, and they used green wood. Hey. Okay. So you've done some carpentry. And Well, I, I've, I've done enough to know that you shouldn't build things with green wood. Yeah. I mean, in particular, you shouldn't build a ship with green wood yeah. because it's not going to be very water resistant. Right. So the idea being that as the wood then dries, it contracts. And so uh, what used to be a tight fitting joint is now a gaping hole. Yeah, exactly. And in fact, even as it was parked 
in York before anybody got onto it, it was already sinking. They were already using like manual bilge pumps. I get why they went in a canoe, those two guys. Well, that's exactly the reason. I mean, in the in the book, it's like they had some strange premonition. No, they saw how lousy the ship was. Right. They're like, is that ship already sinking? We're going to take our canoe instead. Yeah, so the only people who get on the ship are like prisoners going to be tried or soldiers who have no other choice. Yeah. And so uh, even though it's considered one of the first kind of like creepy Great Lakes Triangle stories, as you say, when we get more data for it, this it doesn't seem strange that the ship sank. Okay. But here's a weirder one. The Bavaria. This one also takes place in the Marysburg Vortex. Okay. The triangle within the triangle. The triangle in the triangle. In May of 1889, the three-mast lumber schooner Bavaria was being towed along with two other lumber schooners by a steam barge named the Calvin during a fierce spring storm. There was a crew of eight aboard the Bavaria, including her captain, James Marshall. But as the steam barge towed the ships to port, the tow line snapped and the Bavaria drifted away, bumping into one of the other schooners as it sort of lost control in the waves. Now, the other two lumber schooners were able to regain control and get safely to shore. But weirdly, according to the captain of the towing barge, there was no attempt by the crew of the Bavaria to get her sails up or to try to steer her to safety. She was just being thrown around by the waves and wind. The captain of the Calvin was so concerned that something was wrong in the Bavaria that he pulled alongside her, which was a dangerous maneuver in the, in the heaving waters, but he wanted to see if the Bavaria's crew would be able to attach another tow rope to their stricken vessel, but the ship somehow already appeared deserted, huh. even though it had only been a couple minutes since the tow rope had broken. So the Bavaria foundered on the waves, take, taken on some water, and then eventually drifted too close to Galoo Island and grounded. Didn't sink. Okay. It just grounded, so it was sort of stuck there. So after the storm calmed down... The schooner Armenia saw the grounded Bavaria and sent a small rowboat over to it to check on the condition of the crew. And what they found was that the Bavaria was still in good shape, with very little damage to the hull, very little damage to the mast, totally seaworthy still. There was some water in her hold, but not enough to pose a threat. And because her cargo was lumber, I mean, lumber floats anyway. It would have been really very unlikely that she would have sunk in this storm. In the captain's quarters, they found all of his papers, they found a bunch of money, in the oven, they found some freshly baked bread, but there was no trace of any of the crew. Huh. Only a lone canary in a cage in one of the cabins still happily singing away. Hmm. So, ghost ship. Ooh. Yeah. Creepy. Very creepy. Ghost ships are kind of creepy. There is something very creepy about the ghost ship. Uh, and none of the people, none of their remains was ever found. Like, none of the crew... No idea what happened to them. And so this is a bit of a puzzle. It doesn't make any sense. Why would they have abandoned ship? Mm. Like it was a seaworthy ship. Why would they have risked getting into the, like the, the heaving waves of the Marysburg vortex when they could have just stayed on this ship that would have continued floating around? Yeah. And so this was, was an extremely creepy story. Uh, they did find that one of the rowboats had been lowered down. Okay. But again, that doesn't make any sense. Why try to get off a ship that isn't sinking? Yeah. So, what do you think of that one? I don't know. Um, and it, it, it is an interesting experience not to know mm-hmm. when you are confronted with a story like this because I can feel myself wanting to make sense of it somehow. And I think 
this is one of those seductive aspects of conspiratorial thinking when conspiracies go wrong or when they are not descriptive of what's going on is is this experience of like yeah i i, I can't explain this yeah but i want to i, I want, want an to. answer to this i want to know what happened i would love to have seen like what happened so that the canary was fine no money was taken right and the captain's papers were still there like if the camp if the captain's abandoning a ship you take your papers and money and you take your money but the, the papers are almost more important yeah i can throw out a couple of just guesses sure uh, one is that i think what makes this story uh, so creepy is that it seems to have been abandoned quite early mm -hmm. maybe it wasn't Maybe it just seemed abandoned to the person who had pulled up. But again, I don't know. Are you on the deck of a ship when, you know, there's a raging storm and uh, there's not much you can do? So would that solve it? It doesn't solve it. But yeah, I'm at a loss. I have a hypothesis. All right. Because the captain would not have left voluntarily without his papers. It's unlikely, especially in a situation like this where they clearly had time. No. The ship wasn't sinking. So like a mutiny? Um, this, I like the way you're going. Okay. But this is what I think might have happened. I think the captain, after the rope breaks in, initially, the captain probably ran out onto deck to try to get a feel for the situation. Yeah. The captain maybe gets knocked off the ship uh -huh. into the lake. And so now we have a captainless ship with a bunch of people who aren't necessarily that experienced uh, in how to navigate and right. how to run a ship. And because the captain had been lost, and because they had bumped into another ship, they might have assumed, well, maybe this ship is going to sink. Maybe we got to get off this ship. Mm -hmm. And so then they tried to lower the lifeboat, and then they were lost as well. Oh, yeah. Okay, so people trying to deal with the storm, a bunch of bad things happen. And this I remember actually from my research on the Bermuda Triangle. Somebody who was in charge of reconstructing aviation disasters uh, noted that usually it's more than one thing that goes wrong. Mm -hmm. And so there's a sort of critical mass of m problems or mistakes that compound each other. And so we are privy to the storm being one thing. But you're right. And if you add, then maybe the captain is lost. And maybe who knows what else. You bump else. into the other ship. You bump into the other ship. Somebody freaks out on deck. They try and, you know, I can see how a situation that, doesn't necessarily need to be fatal, quickly turns into a really dangerous situation. And that's such a common thing for humans. They say that if somebody's going to get lost in a forest, it's more likely that a kid will survive than an adult. Oh, really? Do you know why? No. Because they say the kid lost in the forest is just going to sit down and wait to be rescued. That's interesting. The adult is going to take action. Right. Which is often the wrong thing to do. I yep. remember um, as a... Uh, ESL teacher, I used to play a game with my students, which was based on a military example. And it's, uh, you were crash land in the desert, and you're 19 miles away from the nearest settlement. And the question is, what do you do? Uh, they had a list of things that they had, and, you know, they had to look it up. And anyway, the answer to the game is, wait to be rescued. Right. And what was really interesting was also the gender divide in the room about who wanted to do what. Inevitably, um, the majority of women were like, let's stay put, use our resources to just try and stay alive. Someone will come after us. The men were often, let's go to the Action. mining camp 90 miles away. You can't walk there in a desert. 
you're going to die right. on that's, the way. That's too far. There's no way you can do it. So it's funny that, and the reason I bring it up is because it was based on a military disaster trainer. You know, he like trains soldiers on how to survive disasters. And this was one of his key examples, kind of, uh, yeah, to your point, stay put. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah, our desire to take charge of a situation, is it's kind of like a human folly amplifier sometimes. Yeah. That we try to fix things. I mean, just think in your own lives, how often you're like, no, wait, I can fix this. <laughs> and then it, it is not fixed. All right, so a couple stories, creepy for sure, but also both, we don't need anything supernatural to explain these stories. True. So let's get weirder. Okay. And let's do something we almost never do on the podcast. Okay. Let's talk about airplanes for a second. <laughs> Was the airplane museum not enough for you? It's never enough. One of the most famous stories of the Bermuda Triangle, of course, is Flight 19. Right. If it isn't for Flight 19, I don't think the Bermuda Triangle catches on and becomes this, this big conspiracy so, Yeah, thing. certainly not in the modern period, because it was Christopher Columbus who started kind of talking about how his compass went screwy. So there was this notion, but it was definitely in the modern period, the disappearance of Flight 19, that, and then the, also the rescue crew that tried yeah. to find them, they also disappeared, and that really gets that story going. Yeah, it, it's a creepy story, and we talk about it in that previous episode. So that's six airplanes. Yeah. That's a lot of airplanes to lose. Just in Lake Michigan, which, as I said, is one of the more psychopathic of the lakes, just during World War II, 200 aircraft lost. Wow. 200 military aircraft lost. Wow. Just in one lake. And that's also, there's no battle going on in no, North yeah, America. They're not getting shot down. Yeah. They are just crashing into the lake. Huh. 200. Apparently, Lake Michigan is still filled with wrecks of old World War II airplanes. It wasn't just military planes. 1950, June 23rd, NWA flight 2501, not the hip-hop group, <laughs> flying a DC-4, which is a really reliable and safe plane. They're flying from New York to Seattle with a stopover in Minnesota. You got 58 people on board. But it never arrived at the stopover. Somewhere over Lake Michigan, again, that psychopath of a lake, the plane disappears. There was an extensive search, including the use of sonar and dragging the lake bottom with trawlers, and there was some light debris, like fabric from seats, some body parts were found, but the majority of the fuselage was never recovered, and at the time it was the worst commercial airliner accident in American history. Really? Yep. Well, 58 people killed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But again, you'd think that this is the kind of stuff we would grow up knowing about. Yeah. Well, I mean, at the time it was a, it was a very big deal. And again... The people could not figure out, like, what was the problem? I mean, the weather and conditions weren't optimal, but, like, what caused this crash? And because there was no parts of the plane found, hmm. uh, anytime there's a plane crash, they basically take every tiny little part they can find to try to reconstruct the right. plane. And they're often able, after they do that, to figure out, oh, this went wrong, or this part failed, or there was an issue with this. But when you have a completely missing plane like this, it's a mystery. And in the 1950s and 60s, there were dozens of jet fighters lost in the Great Lakes area, sometimes after being scrambled to intercept a UFO. Hmm. Uh, we've already done an episode on this one, so I'll just mention it briefly. 1953, a UFO was detected moving across Lake Superior. An F-89 Scorpion jet fighter was sent after it, and just as it intercepted the radar signal, the Scorpion vanished off the radar screens of the ground controllers huh. and was never seen again. The U.S. Air Force explanation 
was that the UFO was just a Canadian transport plane, of course, and that the pilot of the Scorpion must have developed vertigo and just crashed into the lake. But, according to the uh, Freedom of Information Act request I ran on the Canadian government, we didn't have a transport plane in the area at that time. <laughs> Nicely done, Nathan. <laughs> well, I mean, if we're talking about airplane, that is my wheelhouse. So that's a, a legit strange story, which and one that I think is actually one of the most compelling UFO interactions. Yeah, yeah. There were two people killed. There yeah. was a plane lost. There was what appeared to be something of, if not a, a complete cover-up, certainly a bit of a misdirection. Sounds a lot like the Captain Mantell. Yeah. Incident. Right? Yeah. Like very, a very legit UFO encounter as opposed to the lot less legit encounters that sometimes populate that those narratives. Yeah, there was something in the air over Lake Superior. And that scorpion got to it, and then something happened to that scorpion. Uh, another example happened in September 1960. Two Canadian CF-100 fighter jets, which uh, we stood in front of one of those the other day. Okay. Uh, they were flying along the north shore of Lake Ontario on a clear day. The lead CF-100 flew into a large cirrus cloud and never came out of it. No mayday, no parachutes were seen by the second crew, no smoke, no debris, no wreckage was ever found, and again, they did a massive extensive search of the shoreline and the lake. If something had gone down and crashed on the land, somebody would have seen that. Right. And nothing. It went into a cloud and apparently never came out of it. Dun-dun-dun. Now, this takes us to kind of a, a stranger area. So now we've got some missing planes. Some of those planes are intercepting UFOs. Some of them appear to be disappearing. Well, throughout the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, there were a massive pile of UFO sightings around the Great Lakes area. Now, most fell into the categories of what Project Blue Book analyst Dr. Alan Hynek called nocturnal lights and daylight disks. Okay. So, of course, Hynek, you're familiar with him. He worked yep. with Ruppelt. That's right. He, so he was the, was he astrophysicist? who worked on Project Blue Book with uh, Captain Ruppold. He's the sort of the brainiac who's bringing math and science to bear on the questions of, is this a UFO encounter? And of course, what Nathan is referring to is that Ruppold and Hynek have a kind of um, a list of different events that would cause sightings in which sightings are more likely to happen and also which sightings would, as a result, be deemed better or more interesting than others. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting thing about Heineck is that he starts off as a hardcore skeptic. Yeah. He's like, oh, there's no UFOs, this is nonsense. We, we all do. Yeah, but then as he worked on it longer <laughs> and longer, increasingly he becomes convinced that A, the US Air Force is covering stuff up. Yeah. And B, there is something to this phenomenon. Right. So yeah, like as you say, Heineck is the one who came up with the close encounters sort of category system. Right. Close Encounters of the First, first second, second, and Third, third kind. kind. These uh, nocturnal lights and daylight disks, these are, they're not a close encounter. So it's sort of a separate classification system. Right. And, and there's nothing uh, particular about the majority of these Great Lakes UFO sightings that sets them apart from other contemporary sightings. Because again, in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, how busy were the UFOs? Very busy. Yeah. That That's like... I mean, that's prime UFO period. That's like a 30-year flap right yeah, there. Yeah, that is the time for UFOs. Except, of course, there are some of those which involve the loss of jet fighters. Uh, we already mentioned one of those incidents, the 1953 Scorpion interception over Lake Superior. But I found another one. Okay. I dug up another one in the Blue Book files. All right. July 1954, a UFO was picked up on radar near Walesville, New York. 
There's also eyewitness accounts that describe an object that looked like a silvery golf ball, with one airline pilot also stating that there appeared to be a light emanating from the object. Hmm. So this is another one of those situations where we're like, yeah, something. Yeah. Something is up there. Right. Don't know what. It's unidentified. But this is based on something. Now, an F-94 was scrambled to intercept it. And when the two-person jet fighter got near to the object, the cockpit of the fighter plane was filled with an intense, unbearable heat. Hmm. The pilot and the radar officer were forced to bail out, and then the jet tragically crashed into the street of Walesville. Oh, wow. Killed a kid and his parents in a car. Oh, my God. Also, like, burned a house down where there was a woman who was making lunch for her kids. So four people killed. And what about the pilots? The pilots were okay. They bailed out. Okay. And then the plane just crashed into the ground. Terrible. Now, obviously, you have to have an investigation into this. Yeah. The official Air Force investigation argued that since there was no... And here's one where they were able to find the plane. They did put all the pieces together. And they examined the plane's ventilation system and didn't find any evidence of smoke or oil in it. Hmm. Which means that there hadn't been a fire in the cockpit. Mm -hmm. Instead, according to the Air Force, the most likely explanation was that there was a malfunction in the fire detection system in the plane. Which gave the pilot a false fire alarm. Okay. And then caused the pilot to panic and imagine that he was warm. Hmm. resulting in the bailout, which resulted in the crash. But now we are starting to get more interesting data. Like, you began with the first story and asked me what I thought. Now we have a lot of stories. And this is what becomes compelling, I think, about one of these locations on Earth where weird things happen, is, of course, in any place and time, some weird thing could happen that we don't have all the data to explain. But now we're, we're giving story after story, they all seem different. It's not like they're all going down in the same place or seeing yeah, no, the same it's thing. It's weird. Yeah, right? and, and I mean, the same thing we did with the Bermuda Triangle. When you're given a ton of stories, you think, oh, there must be something to this. Yeah. But then what we always do is systematically go through each one individually. Right. And then you find, oh, no, wait, this one, this one, this one, all of these are explainable. Well, so with the... With the ships, we've had like a badly built ship and then we've had... Well, the the second story wasn't explainable as such, but we did have some non-alien, uh, deeply conspiratorial theories. Mm-hmm. What about all these plane things? I mean, you fly into a cloud, never to come out again. You see some kind of orb that shines a light on you. You bail out of an airplane. I mean, these are trained professionals who wouldn't do this just on a whim. Yeah, I mean, and the Air Force needed an explanation. Yeah. And, and that explanation seems a little bit too... Like, it, it sort of has the air of a cover-up about it again. Weather balloon. Yeah. It's the weather balloon it's, explanation. Yeah, it seems a bit weather balloonish. <laughs> because we do know that it was trying to intercept something. And as you say, these are trained pilots. And the last thing that they would want to do is get out of an airplane over a populated area. Yeah. Because they know that airplane is going to hurtle to Earth. And it's filled with rockets and explosives and fuel. And we've talked a lot about uh, the nocebo effect and the placebo effect. Mm. The nocebo effect, when you think something is harmful, it feels harmful, even if there's no real effect there. And so, yeah, maybe uh, a pilot sees a warning light. And then because they start to panic, they think there's a fire in the cockpit, which, of course, would be a terrifying thing to happen if you're a pilot in one of these pressurized cockpits. But the idea that he would see a light, a warning light go off, which are kind of infamous for malfunctioning. Right. 
that a pilot would see the light and be like, you know what? We bail out. We right. bail out over this town. Right. So I don't know. I don't, I don't know. But this is the case with so many of these UFO encounters that we have got from the 50s, 60s, and 70s. We always end up with, uh, I don't know. Yeah, it's sort of uh, the, the official explanation leaves you almost more suspicious. And then any rational explanation that you come up with is a bit unsatisfying because you don't have enough data to know whether it fits or not. Although, I mean, narrative is such a compelling, convincing way of, of coming around to a position where statistics almost never are. Yeah, that's true. Even though we know that statistics are probably a better representation of reality than right. the stories are. So I will say, if we look to the statistics, then maybe all of these airplane crashes make a bit more sense. Okay. But I, I will say this. It could be, in part, it's also because it's the Great Lakes which covers parts of Canada and parts of the United States, it also covers the most populated parts of Canada okay. and some of the most populated parts of the United States. Okay, so so it's by virtue potentially of just there, there are more people. There's a ton of people there. So if we compare this to a lake in, I don't know, Alaska. Or Colorado. Or there. There just may be a lot fewer people and so there's going to be a lot fewer things that happen. Yeah. Now, this ended up being, without spoiling the Bermuda Triangle thing, this ended up being one of the explanations we encountered was that, yes, there are a lot of shipwrecks in the Bermuda Triangle. And it happens to be also because there's a lot of tourists who get drunk and there are reefs and things off the coast of Barbados, say, and, and you know, people crash into them and their ship goes down by ship here it could be like a four-person sailing boat or whatever those still get logged statistically as shipwrecks so is that it is are we just dealing with a bunch of drunk torontonians and uh detroit citizens who are like but those pilots wouldn't have been drunk no but not all of them but those pilots would have been in a first generation jet fighter Okay. So here's where more statistics come in. Okay. Remember I always said that there's like hundreds of airplanes at the bottom of Lake Michigan? Yeah. Well, in the 1940s, the U.S. Navy was training thousands of pilots to land on aircraft carriers in Lake Michigan. Ah, so it was like a training ground. It was a training ground. For something that is a very difficult procedure. It's like almost impossible to do. <laughs> Trying to land an airplane on an aircraft carrier is mind-bogglingly difficult. And you can... I've been... Uh, looking at some on YouTube where you can follow um, there's sort of the uh, there's a camera in the cockpit with the pilot and what the first thing that struck me was how incredibly tiny yeah. the, the the aircraft carrier is like the, it's it's just a speck yeah and you gotta you gotta grab there's a wire that goes across yeah. and you gotta grab it with a hook on the tail of your plane and yeah. if you miss it that's it you've gotta gun it yeah. and take off again if you can yeah. otherwise you're going into the drink yeah and, and they hurtle at this, like, speck of nothing in the middle of the ocean at unbelievable speeds. And it really, by the time they land, it isn't much bigger than a speck. It's yeah. a really quite astounding procedure. It's amazing anybody can do it successfully. Yeah. And these are trainees. Right. So, so they didn't all do it successfully. So statistically, why are those, all those planes there? It makes sense. And all these, these jet fighter incidents, we've talked about the CF-100s and, and the F-94 and maybe even the F-89. First and second generation jet fighters were absolutely lethal to their pilots. They had terrible safety records. Really? Okay. The speeds that were being achieved with the new jet engines created problems that engineers hadn't encountered before. Uh, the rapid pace of technological development during the Cold War meant that many designs were rushed into production before they had been adequately tested. Uh, you and I saw an F-104 the other day, and I pointed it out to you. And I said it was called the Widowmaker and the Flying Coffin. And okay. The, 
Well, Germany bought 900 of those <laughs> okay. from the U.S. in the 1960s. 300 of them crashed. Wow, okay. Uh, out of 900. Now, you see, that's funny, because when you said Widowmaker, I thought that was a testament to how good the plane was. Oh, it was making widows on the other side. Right. No, no, it was no, making... it was making widows of the pilot, yeah. uh, or pilot's families. I yeah, guess. it was making German widows. Right. That's a brutal safety record. One third of the F-104s crashed and killed a lot of pilots. Uh, there was an even worse safety record in Canada for the CF-86 Sabres. And so why were there so many early jet crashes in the Great Lakes Triangle? Maybe just because there were so many early jet crashes everywhere. Okay. So, I mean, that doesn't really explain everything, but it... Well, it digs down a little bit to defang the statistics or the way in which that narrative would get interpreted, I think. Yeah, it's a lot of planes, but if you look at it in the context of uh, similar kinds of planes, it's not that unusual. And then if you think, I think the important thing about the training site on Lake Michigan, that's also really important. Yeah, like no story that involves a 1950s or 60s jet fighter crashing immediately makes me suspicious. <laughs> okay. Because tragically, they went down constantly. Right, okay. But here's a Great Lake story for you. All right. And I, I mentioned this off air. I don't know what to do with this story. Okay. This is one of the strangest stories I've encountered. All right. That's... And, and think about what that's saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Given what we do for a living. All right, so... This is another UFO encounter. This one gets bumped up to a close encounter of the second kind. Okay. Meaning that there's evidence of a physical effect from the UFO. Okay. So north of Lake Ontario, there's a community on Boshkung Lake. And in 1973 and 74, they had themselves a full-blown UFO flap. Okay. It started in November of 73, when two real estate agents named Pitts and Cooper were driving by the lake and saw what they described as an immense cone-shaped object with a light coming from both the front and rear. Okay. Someone else reported seeing something that looked like a helicopter without a tail. Other people said they saw cigars. Other people said they saw saucers. All right. Other people said they saw polywogs. What's that? It's like a tadpole. Cute. It's like an adorable way of saying tadpole. Cute. It's folksier. Uh, to the point where the OPP, the uh, Ontario Provincial Police, gets called in, and they classified the sightings as reflections off the lake and mm -hmm. then left. Uh-huh. Weather balloons. Yeah. Yeah. So by 1974, the residents were getting fed up. They said that their frozen lake was being treated like some kind of interstellar airport. Okay. And they were particularly upset <laughs> because the appearance of the UFOs coincided with interference on their television sets. Uh, of course. This is back in the day when you got the big bunny ears. Yeah, and you're going to miss Hockey Night in Canada. You're going to miss Hockey Night in Canada. I mean, you, you want to see Lanny McDonald's mustache. Yep. You can't. And so in March... There was a reporter for the Minden Progress, a newspaper, and they camped out for five days by the lake, just observing all this. Yeah. And then on the fifth day, the angry town folk had had enough, and they stormed out onto the ice on snowmobiles, wielding high-powered rifles, and attacked the UFOs. Right. Which apparently then took off into the air. Okay. And Earth was saved? And this was all witnessed by journalists? Yes. Okay. And apparently the sound of the bullets hitting the UFO sounded like, like buckshot off a... Like a garbage can. Uh-huh. I have no idea what to do with that story. Any pictures? I got no pictures, unfortunately. So we have journalists, but they don't take pictures. Yeah, there was no pictures. I mean, I think we need to go to this town. Yeah, maybe. I think we need to go to the archives. Well, I mean, people would be still alive from that period, right? Yeah, like, I mean, who were adults. Eight years ago. Yeah, yeah, who were adults at that time. We might be able to track someone down and have a chat with them. Although... That, I mean... That's a weird story. It's a super weird story. 
And again, it comes back to these kinds of stories that become very seductive because you have the inclination to want to solve mysteries. And even if the solving of the mystery has to include aliens or something not that plausible, it's better, at least if it's solved, emotionally speaking. Um, at the and- very least, a bunch of like townsfolk drove out onto the lake shooting rifles at something. But it does, when you're talking about this, does remind me of similar events in history. And I think that that is strategically one way sometimes to solve some of these stories. So I'm thinking of the Battle of Los Angeles. Yeah, right. that's probably where, a good analogy. Where um, for those, because this has gone back a few years in terms of uh, episodes we did on the podcast. And also was, going back a few years temporally, because it was te- 1942. And it was when... There was a huge firefight in Los Angeles at night, and the military is shooting like massive shells at a UFO. And in that one, there, there were journalists, and there was a picture, and they're shooting at something. And it's you can see it on the front page of the newspaper the next day. And do I spoil it? I mean, for those. I mean, that was an old episode. It was an old episode, and for the sake of trying to make sense of this one, there was nothing there. And what had happened was basically a version of a mass panic. Yep. Somebody shot, somebody else shot, then lots of people are shooting, and the effect of the shells exploding there creates smoke, which um, with more shells and more firepower. Uh, gets sort of illuminated in the picture that was taken. It was a little doctor to kind of heighten that illumination. And it really appears as though there is a UFO where there's nothing there. Now, it was all just war jitters. Yeah. And I could imagine uh, we've talked about mass panics. We've talked about moral panics. We've talked about situations where you're more likely to see things that aren't there is when you feel a sense of being out of control and not knowing what is happening in this situation. If they're out at night in a frenzy, they're angry, they're scared, they're shooting. Their TV sets aren't working. They're they're shooting at things. Other people are shooting at things. There's even, you know, it gets legitimated by the fact that the news people are there. I wonder if you could generate the experience of event of an event in each of the participants who are there, just like in Los Angeles, and yet there is no actual cause. Well, I mean, if you had a bunch of people like zooming around on on snowmobiles firing rifles at night, at night in on a lake into the night sky, that's going to be a pretty dramatic moment. Yeah, and and our brains are really good at like filling in missing pieces. Yeah. And by good at it, I mean they are very creative at it. Yeah, and almost it happens beyond our control. So it's not as though I consciously think I'm going to now add data to this story. No, brains do it automatically. That's how I experience the event as though it's happening out there. Yeah. So I hate the kind of thing that I'm doing right now because it ends up sounding quite dismissive. And I don't have any more evidence than anybody else does, especially somebody on the other side of it. And so no, you're just proposing a plausible hypothesis for why this town went out onto the lake in their snowmobiles and started firing rifles. Yeah. And but one that is self-consciously skeptical, like a yeah. hypothesis where I'm like, okay, let's take UFOs off the table and other things, trans, interdimensional portals and whatever you can imagine. Let's take all of that off the table. Could we generate this event knowing what we know about how people operate in groups and how our psychology functions when we're scared. Sounds like you're using Occam's razor. Yeah. which is Can we, can we explain this with the stuff that we already know? Yeah. Or do we need some new stuff that we don't know? Yeah. And in this case, 
maybe we can, but of course you'd be willing, if there was photographs, if there was eyewitness testimony, yeah. you'd be willing to listen to it. And it doesn't make sense of all of it, like the pinging of the shells off of some kind of metallic, what I'm guessing is like the belly of the saucer that yeah. they're firing at. And also the fact that all of the UFOs seem to be a different shape. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's a point, right? That you feel like if, if this was, um, what movie am I thinking of where... Um, Citizen Kane. Is it citizen? I was thinking, no. you know, where they where they come and they just hover above cities, like these Independence Day. Okay, so if it were like it were an Independence Day, where you have these big ships that just sort of hover there, I feel like after the initial shock, you would get a kind of consensus around what shape it is, what color it is, that kind of stuff. Yeah, if everybody's seeing a physical object and it's there for months then there should be some kind of, there should be more agreement than there was here. So again, like when you look at the uh, the Captain Mantell event, which some of this also reminds me, well, earlier stories. Everybody said me, it was a teardrop. Everybody said the same thing. Yeah. Right. And it wasn't an illusion. It was a, something that was really there. Yeah. I might revisit this one. I, I've been combing through the Canadian government UFO files trying to find this case. Okay. So we might come back to this case in a future So we'll episode. have to do a freedom of information request or what? Absolutely. <laughs> Just for the fun of it. I am on a list. <laughs> so there's a bunch of weird stuff. Speculation, as you would imagine, is absolutely rampant, especially because a lot of this stuff comes out in the 1970s. Yeah. In the 1970s was like a boom time for conspiracy theory. Mm-hmm. And so similar to the Bermuda Triangle, when you're dealing with a puzzle with missing pieces, you just pick the hypothesis that you like and fill up those empty spaces. Yeah. Space-time phenomena, wormholes, time travelers, aliens. Uh, this book by Cochran, Gateway to Oblivion, spends a lot of time talking about Atlantis. Okay. You know what that means? We have to We have to talk about Atlantis. Atlantis. Yeah. I look forward to talking about that. But as fun as wild speculation is, I think we're more comfortable with careful analysis. And so what I want to do now is look at some plausible explanations for why the legit weird phenomena of the Great Lakes might exist. Okay. Let's start with, like, ghost ships and UFOs. Okay. Fata Morgana. Heard of it? Nope. Uh, sometimes you might have experienced it. And I've actually seen this in real life, and it is weird and creepy. One of the only times where I was almost convinced that I was looking at a UFO, okay. I was standing by Lake Ontario, looking out at the horizon, and there was something hovering very low, but okay. not touching the lake, okay. and moving back and forth. Okay. It wasn't a helicopter. Okay. And I was like, what is this? What am I seeing? What could be that low and moving this way? What, was it nighttime? No, it was the middle of the day. Middle of the day? Yep. And I could see it clear as anything. What was happening is sometimes air conditions over the Great Lakes can result in a, a temperature inversion. Okay. What that means is that normally you've got the cool air up in the air and you've got the warm air because it's getting warmed up by the ground or the water. Right. But that is to say you have the warm air below and the yeah. cool air above, right? Yeah. No, just because you were using hand signals. That's not helpful in the podcast. helpful for the podcasters out there. Yes. I got it, but yeah. you know. <laughs> they were good hand gestures. <laughs> But sometimes you can have a layer of warm air on top of a layer of cool air, okay. which is unusual, which can then lead to a phenomenon known as atmospheric duct. So basically the air starts getting all messed up and it acts like a lens made out of air. Oh, okay. And that causes the light to bend and warp as it travels between the different atmospheric layers. Okay. And what this can do is it can create strange illusions and mirages. Mm -hmm. For example, it can look like a ship on the horizon is actually floating over the water. 
Okay. So. Oh, that's cool. Oh no, no I'm just thinking about this. That's actually really cool. Yeah. So you can sort of imagine there's like a, there's a dip in the air. There, the air is more moist in some places, less moist in some places. It's warmer or it's cooler, and it just causes the the light rays to kind of warp and bend. Okay. And so you're looking straight at a ship, but then because the light rays have bent between you and that ship, it looks like the ship's up in the air. Hmm. And it and, and I've seen it, and that's what it looks like. It can also give you like double or triple images of a ship stacked on top of each other. Okay. At that point, you're looking at something bizarre. Right. And you'd be like well justified in saying, what in the world is that that I'm looking at? Yeah. So this is likely where the myth of the Flying Dutchman originated. Sailors would see a ship on the horizon that appeared to be flying. Ah. And there's other illusions as well. Uh, For example, in Leamington, Ontario, there are massive greenhouses and you can see the eerie green glow in the sky all the way in Detroit. Yeah, yeah. See, what is this? This is one of your favorite UFO explanations. Yes. Well, that's why I started with when you were talking about what you had seen, the question was, was it nighttime? Mm-hmm. Because, yeah, uh, lights against a dark background um, can often be missing or are often misunderstood for uh, uh, evidence of UFOs, especially, and this is not necessarily true of the greenhouses, when the lights are moving. So if they are, and I've used this example before, on squid fishing boats, they use the lights at night to to attract the squid up to the surface, but those lights are movable. And so when you're standing far away, you don't see the ship and you don't see the apparatus holding the light all you see, see these are these weird lights bobbing around and moving in incredibly fast and weird directions and stuff yeah. and you could see that being weird if you looked yeah. at the horizon you'd be like wait what green or purple domes of light in yeah. the middle of blackness like these islands it's so that all explains or goes some way to maybe explain some of the weird things in the sky yeah what about all the shipwrecks well weather conditions in the great lakes are rough <laughs> like the, the Great Lakes can see some extreme weather thanks to the there's a collision of cold fronts like Canada sends down the cold air right. Mexico sending up the warm air crashes in the middle in the Great Lakes and it can really wreak some havoc and and for those uh, in North America especially um, in this region you know all about the Great Lakes but if there's people listening from a further afield these are huge 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 bodies of water. It is really, really difficult to describe this for somebody who hasn't had a personal experience. Well, if you were in a boat in the middle of any of the Great Lakes, you would only see water in every direction. Yeah, it is like being on the ocean. Yeah. It really is. And And, and the waves can get bad. Well, for example, 1940, Armistice Day Blizzard. There had been a mild autumn on the Great Lakes, and then on September 10th, there were massive and sudden drops in air pressure and temperature. 75 mile an hour winds, which is hurricane, 27 inches of snow fell in a few days. Wow. Two feet. Survivors reported that the cold wind felt like a red hot blade slicing into their lungs, and 200 people were killed. That's just incredible. Five ships were sank, including three large freighters. One of them, the SS Novodok, was broken in two by the weather. People were buried alive in their cars. Their frozen corpses weren't dug out for days. There's also rogue waves out there. 1954, a massive wave came basically out of nowhere and slammed into the Chicago waterfront and killed eight people. Now, rogue waves, again, we've encountered that in the Bermuda Triangle story, but this is on an ocean. Yeah. You know, like, okay, you can might... And the same thing, like, you go out on a sunny day, nothing is happening, and then suddenly 
this immense wave appears out of nowhere, not part of a storm system, and just capsizes boats or whatever happens to be in its way. And this also happens on the Great Lakes. Yeah, I mean, it happens in the ocean because mostly because of seismic events, but it happens in the Great Lakes because of spiking air pressure and high winds. They're called uh, meteo tsunamis. Okay. And they happen dozens of times a year. You can just be out there and all of a sudden, yeah. you're swamped. Uh, there's rocky shoals and sandbars, lots of unmarked underwater hazards that can take the bottom out of a boat. And here's something, like undertow is a very real danger. You know, you and I are talking about this stuff as though we're sort of learning about the Great Lakes. But mm. living on the edge of one, I, you know, I have a bunch of stories of very scary encounters with Lake Ontario, and I know that you do too. Yeah, I'll tell mine. I was out at a place called... I should maybe give a trigger warning here because this is not a nice story. No, this is it's just very this sad. Is a sad story that really happened. Yeah. So I was out at Long Point at the beach and uh, a couple kids came up to me and said, oh, our father's been out in the water a long time and we can't see him and we don't know where he is. So I said, well, what does he look like? I'll go out and try and find him. They described him to me and so I went out into the water. Now this beach... It, it sort of, it goes on very shallow for a really long time. You can just sort of walk out and you're up to your waist maybe or up to your knees even. And you're just way, way out into Lake Erie. And I was walking around and I couldn't find anybody and I couldn't see him. And then I start to get this really uncomfortable sensation where my legs are getting pulled out from under me. Wow. Because I've, I've entered into an undertow. Uh-huh. And an undertow is an unbelievably powerful current under the surface of the water that can basically grab you and haul you out for miles and miles and miles. Yeah. And so I fought my way back to the shore and... Because you were still standing. You were not swimming at this point, right? Well, I had gone out as far that it was starting to get up to about my shoulders. Okay. And so I, I was having a hard time swimming. I was getting tired. If you had been swimming, if you had been like, like not able to touch the ground, would you have been able to fight your way back to shore? No, I'm a pretty good swimmer, but I would have gotten pulled out. And the tragedy is what it turned out to happen was that, that the father of those two kids had been pulled out by the undertow and they found his body like dozens of miles away eventually. You went to his funeral, didn't you? I did. Because I felt, I don't know, it was sad. It is a sad story. I learned about the story after telling you a very similar one. I'll run through it very quickly. But basically, I, I, I took my two kids and another two kids out to the Toronto Islands, which are, is this sort of large public park on Lake Ontario, and of course, full of beaches. And it was supposed to be like this fun day for the kids and... Uh, Various parents had been doing a lot of parenting and I was giving everybody a break and this was supposed to be like this fun, happy day. So we, I take them out to this beach on the islands. I get all the kids who are uh, aged between 7 and uh, 11 years old and I get them into their bathing suits and get them all lathered up in uh, sunscreen, all the kind of things you do. To keep a, them safe. Exactly. All the things you do as a parent. I even had a chat with them about... You know, not going too deep and staying by, like not going, there was um, a sort of a pier of rocks, not going too close to those rocks. And uh, anyway, they were, they had, we'd gone swimming here before and they were quite comfortable with it. And the beach was full of people and uh, I was right there. And so they ran out into the water and I just decided to call 
my wife, just to give her a quick update, as I got myself ready to get into the water. I'd just been taking care of kids the whole time. And um, I noticed that the kids are playing too close to the rocks. And I took a look at it, and I was like, huh, they are uncomfortably close to those rocks I told them not to get close to. So I uh, say to my wife, I got to go and sort this out. I walk into the water, and as I go in, I see that the happy screams of those children are not at all happy screams, but are shouts of terror. There are tears running down their eyes. They have this very eerie look in their face, like they are grappling with life itself. Yikes. And like you, I felt a really strong undertow pulling me out. And of course, what had happened is as soon as they got into the water, as soon as they got like beyond their belly button, they were just being dragged out and they could feel that they were unable to pull themselves back and they started to panic. The two kids close to the rocks were trying to use the rocks to kind of get a handhold, but the waves were crashing them into the rocks. It was just a nightmare. And I go out and I grab the kids and I drag them back onto the beach where they're all hiccuping and crying and kind of uh, coughing up water. And I, to this day, still feel like one of the worst parents ever, at least for that moment, because it was right there on my watch where things could have gone so terribly wrong. There was four of them. If they'd gotten pulled in different directions, I would have had to make some very horrible decisions. Um, oh, of course, everybody yikes. ended up fine. Would have been Sophie's choice. Uh, uh, it, everything ended up fine. But my daughter, uh, who was the furthest out, still re- references the fact that I, quote, saved her last. Oh, well, sure. <laughs> she has never forgiven me for that. And this is only one of, I could tell another four or five stories where I have started out on Lake Ontario on a bright, calm, clear day, and in an instant have found myself in a storm that I was basically unable to manage. I've been stranded. I've been stranded on the runway of an airport. I've been stranded on a beach not being able to get back. I have capsized uh, in a canoe. It is a, and this is the smallest of the Great Lakes, it is the gentlest of the Great Lakes. I have similar stories from friends who were camping, who were going canoeing on Lake Superior, I think. They paddled out. Suddenly the fog emerges and they lose sight of shore and are completely lost for hours. Now, again, you could go adrift there and drift too far to actually ever see shore again. Yeah. I think we've got like a thesis here. It's interesting. You, you mentioned it's like, for both of our stories, it was a nice day. Yeah. Everything was under control. Yeah. But nothing is ever under control. No. And it's never really a nice day. <laughs> and at, at any moment, like disaster is always sort of right there. And you have to wonder if these triangle stories we tell ourselves is to make us feel more safe. Okay. Like there's, there's something weird about disaster. Right. There's something unusual about disaster. There's something point. supernatural about disaster. Whereas actually, you know what? Maybe disaster is the default setting. Yeah. But that's that's a hard way to get through the day. So because this is in our own backyard, yeah, uh, we've we're actually we're going to go now to our senior vortex correspondent, Doctor Matt Barra. Right. That's right. Because we're not actually going to go out onto no, Lake no, Ontario. No. no, we're in the bunker. <laughs> not only is Doctor Matt Barra 
and his family, not only are they in Lake Ontario in a small sailboat, they're in the Marysburg Vortex. Yeah, you sent them right to the heart. You That's sent right. it to the triangle within the triangle of our Bermuda Triangle. Yes, this is, I think, the weirdest part of the entire triangle, triangle, triangle system. It has the very non-ominous name, Maine Duck Island. Okay, full so, of snakes, I hear. Yes, not full of ducks. It might have once been full of ducks before the snakes moved in. It would explain why the snakes are so fat. Because of the isolation from the mainland and its unique ecology, it's sometimes considered the Galapagos of the North. But there's an old abandoned lighthouse there. But it's not abandoned entirely because, as we say, there are hundreds and hundreds of bizarrely large snakes. Wow. Because they don't have any predators, the snakes have grown extremely tubby. Uh, the northern water snakes of Maine Duck Island grow to over four and a half feet long. Wow. The gray rat snakes, seven feet long. No. Yes. Even the garter snakes out there are three feet long. Yeah, garter snakes are always surprisingly big when you see them in real life. So we've got Matt Bear out there, and so we're going to go to Matt now, and we're going to ask him some questions and see how it has been. All right. So Matt Barra, uh, thank you for doing this for us. Uh, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, and this is uh, Matt and Michelle and Anna aboard Svala. Uh, right now we're anchored in Fisherman's Bay, which is in the middle of Maine Duck Island, which is in the middle of the Mayberg Vortex. Um, Matt, have you encountered any unusual weather phenomena during the trip? Yes, yes we have. So we, the, we sailed through the Bay of Quinte, which has really bizarre winds. Uh, so much that like it, it's like even the weather report says it's nine knots uh, gusting up to like 25, 26 knots, which is a huge, it's, it's a huge difference. So it's been really, really unpleasant that way. Matt, it's Nathan. Have there been any navigational anomalies? We went through, we went through a magnetic disturbance. Uh, our compass seemed to be okay though, because we, we had to navigate by compass because we couldn't see where we were going at the time, but that was okay. Thanks, Matt. Have you experienced any, quote, lost time? Well, it's hard to say. Right? So we came in, what was it, July 29th, I think, 2022? No, not July 29th. Some other date. Uh, in 20, in, in what I assume is still 2022, because we're in the middle of a vortex, and we have no cell or internet connection, so we're just here anyway. And also, there are people anchored just beside us uh, that have been playing French house music and Mazzy Star and Thievery Corp in the evenings, which makes me only assume that they came in about the year 2000 and have been trapped in amber ever since. <laughs> yeah, either that or they have terrible taste in music. Have you seen any saucers and or orbs and or polywogs? Flying saucers. Like flying saucers or strange lights. <clears throat> oh, uh, no, not recently. Well, I saw that one that I thought was the moon, but then it was the moon with all the lights crashing down on it, but it turned out to be a radio tower attached uh, across from us in the middle of the night. But we did see a Fata Morgana today, mm -hmm. right? So we were looking across the lake. We saw what looked like the other side of the lake, which probably was the other side, which is what, Rochester or Sodus Bay or something, which is too far to see normally. But you could sort of see it, but it looked like it was floating up above the lake too, because the, with the way the light goes through uh, uh, water crystals, it like, makes a... It, uh, it acts like a telescope, but it also either flips them upside down or makes them float above the land. It's Lee again. Has the number of your crew unexpectedly decreased or increased during the trip? Well, I'm pretty 
sure we have the same amount of crew. We have Mama, we have Papa, and we have me. So it doesn't look like anyone's gotten missing or anyone's... Well, there has been the turtles. They've been popping up everywhere around us. Yeah, we are surrounded by turtles here. <laughs> like, surrounded by turtles. But they're not really part of the crew. We have, these, we have spiders that their bodies are shaped like squids that we've never seen before on board. It's very strange. Have you taken any unusual precautions that you wouldn't normally be concerned about on a trip of this length? Yes, yes, we drive. So there was a storm today and we dragged our anchor. So we put a second anchor on. And remember at Angry Goat Island, the, uh, the, the, the boat was going around the anchor. It was the damnedest thing I've ever seen. I've never seen anything like it. Normally, this is sort of sailor talk. You, sort of sail, you, you sail up into the wind, you drop the anchor, you go backwards and it, it pulls on the anchor and it digs in. Uh, when we tried to do that, the boat didn't go backwards from the wind. It went like sideways to the wind, and then turned around, and then went backwards around the anchor, and then it went forwards for a little while, and then it went backwards again, and did this all night. I've never seen anything like it, and the anchor was all tangled up in the morning. It was, it was helping it out, too. Which is really weird, actually. That was really, like I said, I, I, all my life I've never seen a boat behave like that. Matt, what are some of the unusual landmarks and local ecosystems of the Marysburg Vortex? So there's rocks everywhere. It's like we, so we sail mostly on the western part of Lake Ontario, and there's not really anything to hit unless you hit land. And land has things like the CN Tower on it, so it's not so easy to hit that. There's basically one hard, one hard place uh, near Coburg where there's a big giant rock in the lake, um, kind of like the one that they think sank the Speedy off Presqu'ile, uh, but it's real, and it's there, and it's very poorly marked for a giant rock foot, the size of a football field that's barely under the water, so even motorboats will sink if they hit it. Uh, so there's a bunch of shoals and things here. The, 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 the bottom steps up at this end of the lake too. So it's, it's very, very, very deep near in the western end of the lake and it gets shallower when you hit the vortex area, when you hit uh, uh, Prince Edward County and, and east of there. And you can see it stepping. Especially like also on this island, we walked around, Anne and I walked around it looking for snakes today or looking out for snakes, I guess, maybe. And the island is, the, the edge of it is almost, it's like giant rock steps, maybe four feet wide and a foot high per step. It like steps down into the lake very slowly. So it means that you can't get too close to some of the land or else you'll crash into it because it's under the water. But it also means that the waves get much bigger, much faster here. So when they, when the, when the, the waves start to develop, they get pushed up, they, you know, they, they'll sweep in, especially if they're coming from the west. They hit the shallower uh, rocky shoal shores here, or rocky bottoms anyway, that are pushing the waves up. So it makes the waves much bigger and much more and way more dangerous. Thanks, Matt. I hope you guys make it back safely. Editor's note. Dr. Matt Barra and his wife and daughter all returned safely to Toronto and were not eaten by snakes. <laughs>